Straw Hut Media. So Northstar is Marvel's first canonically gay superhero. He is a French-Canadian all-star athlete skier uh, who is famous uh, for a lot of reasons and also gifted with superpowers that have a specific boost when connected to his twin sister. Um, so almost like a, um, a Wonder Twins powers activate, if anyone knows that really outdated reference. Uh, Northstar does a lot of really cool things. He's the first character to be subtextually kind of obviously queer. He's the first character to be canonically queer by saying in a comic, I am gay. Uh, and he is the first Marvel comic superhero to um, be allowed to get married to someone other than a woman, uh, which Marvel, to their great credit, um, put front and center after years of again kind of obeying this comics code mentality they published this uh two-page spread of north star's wedding um to a man uh which was landmark at the time this is a character who has super speed um flight uh, a little bit of strength uh, and a few other notable categories um, but to a lot of people the most important thing is just that he's a superhero uh, and for a company that has made a fortune creating paradigms of you know heroism for a lot of young people and frankly older people as well to look up to importance of north star in the history of representation of queer representation in media specifically is landmark it is absolutely enormous and everyone deserves to have a superhero do not presume to lecture me on the hardships homosexuals must bear no one knows them better than I. For while I am not inclined to discuss my sexuality with people for whom it is none of their business, I am gay. Be that as it may, AIDS is not a disease restricted to homosexuals as much as it seems at times the rest of the world wishes that were so. Growing up, there weren't a lot of queer fictional characters to read about. As we talked about in a previous episode with Robbie Couch, young adult books haven't always had a lot of representation, and the same is true for comic books. There isn't a character as big as Superman for the queer community to look up to and see themselves in, and there are actual laws to blame for that. It wasn't until the 80s that the Marvel Universe started to introduce queer characters to their stories, and it took another 10 years before any characters were able to fully acknowledge their sexuality and say, I'm gay. Today we're joined by Dr. Andrew DeMann, a university lecturer and comic book expert, to talk about how queerness was introduced into the comic book world, and why many readers don't give comic book creators the credit they deserve. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I am a um, faculty member at the English department at St. Jerome's University on the campus of the University of Waterloo, um, which is a school in Ontario. <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, and I am the project lead for the Claremont Run, which was a big comics study uh, on author Chris Claremont. Andrew's passion for comic books, like many readers, began when he was young. I started as a young teenager, I would say. I think I was starting at like, like 13, somewhere in there. But as he began to study and pursue a degree in English, he put the comic books down in fear that reading them would make him look less serious about his profession. 
and I like regret that so much. Uh, and then I got to PhD school as an American poetry expert, and I was bored out of my mind and just felt like there was nothing new to say and everybody was kind of going in circles. Uh, and I was going to quit, which is tough to do when you know, you're an English major and you've gotten that far. There's like a, an escalation commitment. Andrew was feeling uninspired and lost until the very thing that he put away in order to focus on his career would be the thing that saved it. Uh, and I went home for Thanksgiving and I found my old comic book collection and I thought there was some really cool stuff happening there and that I could be really passionate about and interested in at a time when you know people weren't talking about that. Um, so I, I kind of made that my focus and the university somewhat grudgingly <laughs> allowed me to do that because they didn't have any expertise in comics at the time either. So yeah, that was fun. And then it's been comic scholars ever since. A comic scholar sounds like a pretty cool gig, right? But there's still the question of why do people turn their noses up at comic books? What about them seems inferior to the work of Ernest Hemingway or Charles Dickens? It's weird because it's a North American thing. In Europe, it's never been a thing. Comics have always been legitimate. No one, no one questions them the same way that we would um, not question the novel, even though the novel has some dubious origins as well. Um, so I, I think there's weird kind of elitism there. Then, in 1954, a psychologist named Dr. Frederick Wortham published a book called Seduction of the Innocent, which claimed juvenile delinquency was a result of children reading comic books. Much of the science in the book was flawed and unsupported, but the damage had been done. The U.S. government held a trial to investigate if comics were harming children, and the comic critics, they won. Uh, so the censorship bureau kind of made comics awful, and it was specifically tied to queer sexuality at the same time, which is a kind of interesting um, intersectional history. During the battle to censor comic books, Dr. Wortham used violence among adolescents as the base of his argument, but it wasn't his only tactic. There was, as you would know, like in the 1950s, homosexuality was being taken up as a legal issue, uh, and not just in America, but, but kind of everywhere. Uh, and, and comics were subversively queer, like they always have been. Um, Superman is a naked guy, right? In tights, you just draw little lines on him to make him look um, not naked. But I mean, no human being actually wears tights. Um, so there was um, a sort of niche market that was reading comics in this way. And there was a very popular underground marketplace for often the same creators doing, like Superman, making fetish art, often geared towards a queer audience. Um, so for whatever reason, um, the guy who sort of orchestrated this, Frederick Wertham, he seized on to these concerns. He was very smart. He, he knew that homosexuality was a panic button that he could press in order to sell books. Uh, and it, it, it worked. Um, even though we know historically now that his, his research is so flawed and based on anecdotal evidence and made up statistics. Uh, and this resulted in a censorship bureau that kind of made comics awful because like, if you look at a list of what you couldn't do under comic censorship in the 1950s, I actually did a study where we ran um, every single movie from IMDb's top 250 movies and every single novel from Time Magazine's top 100 novels of the last century. None of them would have passed that code. The Comics Code Authority took away all themes of horror, crime, science fiction, and anything else that made the comics enjoyable. They took away all the flavor. It is hilarious. Um, okay, so the Comics Code, you um, cannot talk about, oh, you can't mention drugs. 
You can't even say drugs are bad because drugs don't exist. You're not allowed to mention drugs. You can't foster distrust of a public official. So you can't have like a crooked cop or anything like that and think what that would mean today. Uh, you can't use the word werewolf in your title. Uh, you can't. Wait, why? Because <laughs> it was Just regarded as the, the EC comics, the horror comics. Yeah, pretty much. Um, there was some targeting of a specific comics publisher who was doing horror comics. So that was in play. Uh, yeah, and um, they, they, they don't actually say um, they don't say queer sexuality. They don't say homosexuality. What they say is sex perversions. You're not allowed to portray sex perversions. But everybody, everybody knew what they meant by that. Uh, so it was, which um, actually sounds worse. Rigid. It kind of does, right? Right. Like you're almost like just say don't say gay instead of perversions. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's an extra little slap in the face too, right? Um, yeah, so, so then the comics code was unbelievably restrictive. You can imagine what that does to a creative medium that was at its height. Uh, and as I said, like, if you read comics from, like, 1954 to 1961, they are unbelievably awful. They're just so boring. They're the worst episode of children's entertainment that you've ever seen. Uh, and it's, it's tragic, because comics were so cool before then, and they've slowly gotten back up there now, which has been kind of fun to see. It's just taking time and it's a lot of censorship to weed through. Yeah, exactly. And like any medium, right? 90% of it is garbage, but the 10% is glorious when you find the good stuff, which is kind of cool. The code's impact ultimately made authors and illustrators reluctant to admit they were working in comics because of the deviant reputation they now had. The number of comics being released decreased from 650 titles in 1954 to just 250 in 1956. And it wasn't until after 2011 when all major publishers stopped adhering to the restrictions. My first comic was a Chris Claremont X-Men comic, uh, which is kind of awesome because that's my that's the guy I study, right? That's that's been my big field. Um, and if you've ever read Chris Claremont's X-Men, um, he was doing things subversively with queer sexuality. Um, that are just legendary. And if you read them now, it is so hilarious that people were not like catching on to what he was doing. Uh, like you, you could say that we're doing some like, like kind of queer baiting stuff or dog whistling stuff. Um, but, but generally speaking, like it, it's a really human portrayal. He, he was embraced by the queer community um, as early as the 1970s at a time when, again, literally illegal um, to have any kind of um, deviant, same sex, alternative or queer uh, representation of sexuality in any form. At the time, comics could only hint at a character's sexuality. They couldn't have the character say they were gay or openly be in a queer relationship. They basically were straightwashed. Queer characters existed, but they were subtle, especially for younger audiences. Uh, and then you go back to it as an adult, and you're like, how, how stupid was I <laughs> to, to not pick up on this? Um, which was kind of, kind of charming in its own light. Uh, and, and yeah, he, he's been very upfront about it. You, you see interviews with him. He, he knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, and it, it's, it's kind of delightful. He was informed by things like Wicca, um, which is okay. a very kind of, um, its views on sexuality are very non-normative. Uh, and that led to some, some really kind of cool directions. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, Claremont teamed up with John Byrne, an amazing comic artist, and people fell in love with the duo's work. They created popular X-Men comics, including the Dark Phoenix saga, Proteus, and Days of Future Past. But it was Claremont's not-so-subtle plots that caused Byrne to pull the plug on their partnership. 
Byrne left the book because he was upset with Claremont's use of what Byrne refers to as, I'm quoting here, sex stuff. Uh, and, and what he means when he says that isn't sex stuff. What he means is he didn't like the queer sexuality. Um, so he departed from, from X-Men and thus ended one of the most famous um, um, writer-author, or sorry, writer-penciler duos in the history of the comics. Was Claremont queer? <laughs> okay, so Claremont, what we know, Claremont doesn't talk about his sexuality. He has been asked many times. He doesn't talk about it. We know on the record that he's been married to at least two women. Um, one of them, a probably not confirmed, but we're pretty sure, um, practicing um, Wiccan priestess, uh, a very famous one named Grey Malkin out of New York City. But again, not 100% clear. Um, largely suspected that he was certainly active in the New York City kink community of the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, what shape that takes, we do not know. Um, but, like, man, I would love for him to write a very honest biography and, and tell us where he was drawing from um, to create these stories that he was creating. When we come back, Andrew properly introduces the first out gay superhero and discusses Disney's effect on Marvel Comics. Welcome back. Today we're speaking with Dr. Andrew DeMann, a comic scholar who's currently researching the life and work of comic writer Chris Claremont. Before the break, Andrew explained how Claremont and John Byrne's partnership ended because of Byrne's conservative beliefs. Now, there's a twist in the tale, as Byrne goes on to make queer comic book history. The guy I mentioned who didn't like the sex stuff, John Byrne, um, he's the creator of the first canonically gay superhero. And, and that's really counterintuitive to a lot of people, but I find it kind of like, like beautiful in a weird way that even someone who's been regarded as being ultra-conservative, some have said bigoted, um, that, that, that he flat out states, I created North Star because comics have to represent reality and there are queer people in reality uh, and we needed to have gay superheroes. Uh, and he, he's very proud of that. Um, and if you've, you know, read some of his other stuff that he's done, like again, he can be kind of kind of bigoted <laughs> in some ways. So the idea that, that even someone like that sees the point of representation is, is kind of buoying to me in a weird way. Northstar is a Marvel superhero who is a member of the team Alpha Flight. He was created in 1979, and on top of being the first comic book superhero to state, I am gay, he was also the first to have a same-sex marriage. I mean, Marvel Comics, they love wedding issues. <laughs> There's a lot of data to suggest that wedding issues don't sell well, actually, which I think is kind of funny, um, but they still love them. Uh, so like when um, Spider-Man got married to Mary Jane for the first time, that was huge. It was an event that everyone was kind of looking forward to um, and had a lot of focus on. Um, so I think when we knew that North Star was going to get married, the big question we were asking is, will Marvel actually shine a spotlight on that? Or is this something that's going to happen off page entirely or have like a one page brief dedication to it? Um, but they they pulled out all the stops. Uh, this isn't the marriage of two superheroes. Um, North Star's husband is, I don't want to say just a dude, but he's kind of just a dude in the superhero universe, right? Like he's not a superhero. Uh, he's not a known quantity. He's a love interest. And that's something that is also kind of important in some counterintuitive ways. Uh, so for them to make this a 
double page issue for them to pursue media coverage that they pursued uh, and to again shine this spotlight on it i think for a lot of people that was marvel making right uh, on something that they had kind of done wrong for a whole lot of years and as i said like their hands are a little bit tied with the comics code um but marvel has put so much attention into things like the civil rights movement some say appropriating and that's a fair argument um, but they've largely ignored the idea of queer sexuality except as subtext in their books um, so for them to um, invest in this storyline the way that they invested in it um, i think that was a kind of jubilant moment for a lot of comics fans who had struggled to reconcile their love for marvel comics with marvel's historic treatment of queer sexuality In 2009, the Walt Disney Company bought Marvel Entertainment for $4 billion. Under new management, fans became worried for the future of their favorite characters, especially those who are queer. When Disney made the Fox merger, they got this iconic, child-oriented, queer sexuality storyline um, that everyone was, was ridiculously excited um, to see. The story was Noelle Stevenson's Nimona, originally a graphic novel about the growing bond between an evil ex-knight and a teenage shapeshifter. And a lot of people in the media were saying, Disney's going to squash it, they're going to find a way to kill it. Um, and the studio that was making Nimona was almost finished making Nimona. They recently went out of business with no advanced plans on whether or not they're going to allow this movie to see the light of day. Um, and that, that, that could be a legitimate thing. We're in a pandemic. Disneyland is not drawing a ton of people right now. Um, but a lot of people were concerned that this was reflective of Disney's stance on queer sexuality. Disney's track record for including queer characters in their films isn't great. Something that is reflected as well, um, when um, Endgame came out, Disney very proudly announced that there was going to be queer representation. And it was one guy in the background of a scene whose partner is dead and just talks about the fact that he had a husband, which was disappointing, I think, to a lot of people. Um, so I, I think Marvel's commitment to queer sexuality emerges more before the Disney merger. And I think a lot of people are watching very carefully because they are concerned um, that the parent company is going to diminish some of the gains that Marvel has made. Disney does have queer content on some of their acquired platforms, such as Love, Victor on Hulu, and Everything's Gonna Be Okay on Freeform. But... Proper representation isn't black and white, and there are a lot of factors that go into doing it correctly. So one of the things that can happen in these early things, including with some of the North Star stories, is that a character can be overdetermined by their sexuality. Uh, and this is just like tokenism, right? The character becomes the gay character, and that's all they are. Uh, they're defined exclusively by their sexuality. Every storyline is about their sexuality in a roundabout way. Um, it, it's, I don't know, disheartening at this point in our media history that that's still going on, but it's still going on. Other concern with queer representation is ghettoization. In this case, that can be isolating all the queer characters into one singular project instead of including different sexualities in all projects. What they'll do is they'll pander to a niche audience and they'll have like one book and like, like all the characters are queer in that book and they get to point at that book and say, look, we have queer representation. But there's still no queer characters showing up in Captain America and Iron Man and all these other books. So they've just taken all of their like queer representation and they've pushed it into one corner. A lot of people are huge fans of Kieran Gillen's Young Avengers, uh, as, as I am. It's, it's a remarkable book, um, but it contains a lot of Marvel's discussions of queer sexuality 
only in that book. So it's in some ways empowering Marvel to not make the changes that they probably need to make. Um, but we do know that the Marvel um, Cinematic slash TV universe is pushing towards a Young Avengers storyline. Um, and I think a lot of us in the comic studies field are looking hard at that to see if they're going to um, do what's called symbolic annihilation uh, and, and make all these queer characters you know, aggressively heterosexual or just not talking about their sexuality. Um, or if they're going to sort of honor the actual backstories of these characters. Um, so the short answer is we're going to find out real soon. Um, and a lot of us are kind of scared because Disney. Um, but I don't know. There, there's room to be hopeful as well, I think. Northstar was the first out gay superhero in the Marvel Universe, but there are numerous characters in the comic book universe before and after Northstar who were queer-coded, meaning the writers left hints to their sexuality within their characters' actions and personality. What you'll find is that most Marvel superheroes at some point in their existence have been queer-coded, including the big ones. Uh, um, Captain America and his relationship to Bucky Barnes, just as many people ship that in the cinematic universe. Um, yeah, that, that's been there in comics for a good long time. Batman and Robin um, for a good long time. Wonder Woman and a number of Amazons. Um, Wonder Woman was almost kind of in DC Comics in the 1970s in the George Perez run. Uh, I identified as queer, uh, which is... I mean, ridiculously obvious. They, they all live on an island where there's literally no men. <laughs> it's, it's just all women. Uh, and, and for the longest time, the creators were like pretending that there was no sex stuff, um, which is strange. Especially if you know the creator of Wonder Woman, who was um, very much queer coding Wonder Woman from the outset. Despite the long list of subtle queer characters, there are two comic book characters who are out and proud bisexuals. And that would be um, Deadpool at Marvel. Um, they've only like hinted at that in the movies. Okay, maybe they've more than hinted at that in the movies, I should be fair. Um, it, it's much more obvious in the comics. Uh, and then Harley Quinn at DC Comics. Uh, again, these are not side characters. These are not token characters. These are flagship characters. Um, so to have them um, embrace a queer sexuality is again a sign of clear progress on a massive, uh, a mainstream multimedia level. Harley Quinn is known for having a toxic relationship with the DC supervillain, the Joker, but she has another romantic relationship with Poison Ivy. Deadpool's queer themes can be a little more difficult to spot. Like if you read um, Rob Liefeld's, and Rob Liefeld is a, um, a creator who's constantly under fire in comics. Um, his original creation from Deadpool is, is just Deathstroke, a famous character from DC Comics. Um, so much so that they, they, they literally named him um, Wade Wilson, which is a joke because Slade Wilson is the name of Deathstroke. Um, he's just a badass ninja guy, sexuality not really discussed other than he has a girlfriend that he's very abusive towards. Uh, sometimes the Deadpool creators don't mention that part. Uh, and um, over the years, Deadpool gets a little bit more slapstick. He, he gets more fourth wall breaking. Uh, and, and part of that includes incorporating um, same-sex attraction uh, a number of times to um, certain characters and, and just certainly like um off-the-cuff references to finding male characters attractive. Uh, and that's more or less it. They haven't done a lot with it in terms of exploring really a strong Deadpool romance, in my opinion, um, with the same-sex attraction at the heart of it. Uh, but it's clearly 
woven into Deadpool's character. If you're a Deadpool fan, you know that he is very fluid in his sexuality, in contrast to most superheroes who, of course, are defined as part of their sort of um, very heteronormative uh, exterior. Deadpool is played by Ryan Reynolds in the recent film adaptation, but will Disney take the leap and incorporate more queer storylines into the films? I think that is a massive question. Again, it's one of those things that we're all watching because the first two Deadpool movies were made under Fox. The third one is made under Disney. What is that going to mean? Um, I, I mean, people were terrified even like a PG-13 Deadpool movie was, was going to come out at Disney. Um, not the case. It looks like we're going R-rated. Um, but will queer sexuality be represented in Deadpool to a greater degree following a natural trajectory from the first two films? Or will they tamp that down out of concern for their their shareholders? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm really interested to find out. But I do think what you're saying about how um, individual creators achieving power and advocating for queer representation, I think that has historically been as enormous as an audience advocating for queer representation. So that's definitely something that I could see happening. It could happen. But it depends on these big companies to not back down, even when they're getting pushback from some fans. I, I think I am looking for them to continue to build on the trajectory that they've established and to, again, not step backwards. Marvel has been in the press a lot for getting um, flack from public uh, about anytime they try to be progressive in the representation. Like people are getting super mad about like Thor being a woman. Um, no one complained about Beta Ray Bill, who is the other Thor. Um, but as soon as it's Jane, everybody's freaking out and saying that this is, you know, BS politics and stuff like that. No, it was great storytelling, clearly. So I'd like to see that. I would like to see more queer representation in Marvel Comics with characters who are not defined exclusively by their sexuality. And I would like to see those characters peppered throughout the Marvel Universe, not just cornered in one area that they sort of designate or delegate as the queer corner of the, the, the comics. I love this next part. I asked Andrew if he knew any comic plots off the top of his head that just screamed queer. I'm going to go back to North Star because um, I really love a story in X-Men versus Alpha Flight. So like it's 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 a B story. It's not the, the main story. Um, but what happens is the X-Men rogue, who um, has been identified as queer coded um, by some other scholars, by the way, which is a little odd because she's famously in a relationship with the, the male X-Man Gambit. But anyway, Rogue absorbs Northstar's powers in a fight, and when she absorbs his powers, she gets his memories. At this time, Northstar is very closeted. Uh, so after that, you have this story of Rogue knowing Northstar's secret uh, and the emotional weight that that carries for him uh, and having to interact with him and his teammates who are, for lack of a better term, dicks to him uh, about his sexuality. Uh, and having her show this somewhat misguided sense of like sympathy and appreciation for something that she seems like she really hasn't considered, that's huge. Uh, and the other one that stands out for me is um, it's like a two page sequence uh, in Uncanny X Men 200 and something uh, from the 1990s. It's one of the first issues to feature Gambit. Um, in which you have Mystique and Destiny. Um, Mystique is the one of the most famous X-Men now. She's the, sh the blue shapeshifter played by Jennifer Lawrence in the films. Uh, in Claremont's writing, she has been married to a woman since the 1900s. Uh, and, and he can't say that, but it's, it's ridiculously clear. Like they're having coffee in the morning after waking up. Like you get it. Uh, and Destiny dies and Mystique grieves 
horribly. And there's this just stunningly beautiful scene of Mystique staring at her photo of them when they were both young women. And, and Mystique is um, in the shape of a man at this point. Uh, and she uses her shape-shifting powers to like change her face to look like Destiny when she was young, to look like Destiny when she was old, and then to cry over the photo. And it's just a beautiful moment that speaks to the depth of that emotional relationship that, again, Claremont couldn't canonically speak to. I, I really love that. I couldn't leave my conversation with Andrew without asking him a few speed round superhero questions, starting with what powers would he have? Um, I really like telekinesis. And I think that's probably just me being like a, like a weak bodied academic, the idea of like moving things with my mind. That sounds delightful to me. <laughs> yeah, I think I, when you say moving things with your mind, you mean like, you know, some Jean Grey X-Men evolution, like moving a paperclip yeah. or like the semi. I think I would dabble in the like really shady Chris Angel parlor tricks and like, look at me moving this paperclip uh, and get a massive kick out of that. But no, I would also love to bust down walls and stuff like that. That'd be cool. So gonna, like violent telekinesis if, too. If you're going to have the power, you should have the power, right? <laughs> okay. What would your superhero name be? Oh my God. I'm an English major. I should have this ready to go. Okay. Um, I, I wouldn't actually use this, but my name is J. Andrew Deman. So the way that my university abbreviates emails, my name is actually Jade Man on emails, and all my students point out that that's the worst superhero name ever. Uh, a superhero. Because I do feel like you would need to be like adorned in jade. I know, like what do you do with jade? What are the unique properties of jade other than it's kind of a gaudy color that <laughs> goes with it. I also wanted to ask, is there anywhere that you'd like our audience to connect with you? Whether that's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, we do have a website. It's called ClaremontRun.com. Um, but more usefully, I think you can find me on Twitter at ClaremontRun. Uh, and just day to day, we're talking about this author who did amazing things with subversive representations of queer sexuality, um, which is the focus of a lot of our um, um, daily postings. Thanks for listening. Pride is a production of Straw Hat Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Pride. Yes, it's at Pride. It is that easy. And when you're done with that, you can follow me, at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Maggie Voles, Ryan Tillotson, and Caitlin McDaniel. It's edited by Sebastian Alcala and Daniel Ferreira. Sound designed and mixed by Sebastian Alcala. Even like like Magneto, you're like, oh, I can control metal, right? I know, yeah. But you would be like, I can control jade. Yeah, I, I would not have a to... lot of it in nature, so it's it's environmentally specific. I would live very close to the largest jade mine. <laughs> That's my wheelhouse. <laughs>